Like Ronnie mentioned earlier, we are landing the plane finally on this seven-week series, and it's been fun for me, been awesome. Hopefully it's meant something to you, been slightly worthwhile, maybe just a little, that'd be great. Um, but before we move on, before we finish this up, I wanted to make sure and take a few minutes and recognize some people that have helped me out, just give credit where credit's due. Um, there's, there's a church, uh, the Village Church in, in Dallas, but Pastor Matt Chandler, he preached this, a series on the I Am statements about Jesus about 2016. And they have a resource website that I kind of came across and, and used a lot of that content. It's super helpful. For me, when I preach seven weeks in a row, my job doesn't change. Like, it just gets piled right on top of my job. And so having some help and some, some, just some starting points is really helpful. And, that, and his series was, was great for that. So I just wanted to say thank you to him. He'll never hear that, but I'm just saying it out loud to you. And then the other guy that was super helpful is Ben Schaefer. I don't know if you know Ben, but he's one of our worship leaders. Ben has uh, sacrificed hours of his time over this series. Every Tuesday he met with me for two hours on Tuesday mornings, plus the hours he'd put in before that meeting, just to help me break down whatever scripture we were going to be looking at on that Sunday. And I'm talking like crazy, in-depth, far above my knowledge type of breaking down. So it was fun. It made me feel dumb a lot of times, but I got to take a few notes and it really helped really develop the, the, the passages and breaking them down. And so I'm so thankful to Ben. So he, I don't think he's here this week either, but if you see him, just let him know that you're grateful as well for the work that he put in. But what we've been doing over these past six weeks is we've been looking at, the, at different I am statements that Jesus made recorded by the Apostle John in his book, John. And we've said that it's one thing to know and understand some things about Jesus, some facts about some things that he did, but it's a completely other thing to really know and understand who Jesus is. And it's understanding who Jesus is that helps us know how to have relationship with him. And relationship is really what we're after. And thankfully, Jesus is super clear about who he is, or at least super clear about who he claimed to be. See, over the past six weeks, we've seen Jesus say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I'm the way. I'm the true vine. But what's weird is if you picked up on this, and, and a lot of those statements, Jesus' audience was very offended by what he had to say. They were greatly offended by what Jesus had to say, but why? I mean, why would they be so offended by these statements? It's, it's not like the idea of being bread or sustenance for people or being a provider is something that would really upset them or the idea of him being a good shepherd and, and being a protector of his people. That's not really anything that would set them off. And so why were they so offended? What, what actually made them want to kill Jesus? Well, to understand that, we've actually got to go way back. I mean, way, way, way back into the Old Testament and look at the story of Moses. And whether you have a church background or not, you probably have a pretty good idea of who Moses is, the guy with the two stone tablets and the long flowing hair, you know, like that guy. That's Moses. Well, before that story, he has a, a much bigger story that took place before that. And that story is he's out in the desert. He's kind of wandering the desert. He's a shepherd actually at the time. And, and he's, you know, wandering the hills. And he comes across the bend of a hill and he sees this bush that's on fire, except it's not being consumed by the fire. And he thought that was probably worthy of going to check out. And so he walks over to the bush. The bush then begins to talk to him, and so he sticks around for a little while. The bush tells him to take his shoes off, and so he's talking to the bush back and forth. And the bush tells Moses that, hey, I, I want to go get my people out of Egypt. I've heard their cry, and so I'm going to send you to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And, and rightly so, Moses says, well, okay, bush, but, I mean, when I get there, Pharaoh's going to have some questions for me. <laughs> I mean, he's going to have a lot of questions. I would assume the first question he's going to ask is, well, who sent you? And the bush tells him, tell them, ego imi sent you. Tell them, I am has sent you. This is the name that God gave himself. And in the original Greek, as you saw, ego imi, 
is I am. And for a first century Jew, they, they would have reserved that phrase for the Almighty himself, him alone. And in these I am statements that Jesus made about himself, he could have used either word. Both meant I am. He could have said egu, or he could have used emi, but he didn't. He used egu emi. You see, in all of his statements, all of his I am statements, Jesus is making a claim to be God, which posed a real issue for them. And it should, it should pose an issue for you as well. I mean, there's plenty of people who are still on the fence, right, in this, in this room and watching online who are still thinking, like, maybe, maybe Jesus is just a good dude. Maybe I'd go as far as a, a prophet, whatever that might mean, but I'm a little unsure on this whole son of God thing. Well, unfortunately for you, I'm, I'm sorry to say, like, Jesus didn't really leave us that option. See, it's no longer possible for us to consider Jesus to be a good man, a great historical humanitarian, or a good teacher and communicator. I mean, if you really think about it in today's terms, if you bring it into our lives today, if there was someone out there who, regardless of how, how much good they have done, uh, regardless how, how well of a communicator they were, even on the world stage, if they began claiming to be God, we would call them crazy. Thank you. Much better than the first gathering. We'd call them crazy. And if they begin to come after our establishment, if they began to come after everything that we held dear, everything that we knew to be true, uh, we would want to take care of that person. Uh, we'd, we'd want that person gone. And, and so why? I mean, why is it so different for us? Why, why is it that we believe any of these I am statements to be true? How is it that the church, the, the capital C global church that, that we're a part of, how is it that it's managed to thwart all attempts over the centuries to wipe it out of existence and yet still thrives today? Because a faith, a, a church built on the foundation of a crazy person, it just would never last. So, so what is this foundation? What, what is this foundation our, our faith is built on that has allowed us to sustain after all these years? And that foundation... That foundation is found in the truth of today's I am statement. Uh, in fact, we believe all of the other I am statements because of today's I am statement. Where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. We're going to be reading in John 11 today. Our story comes from John 11 where he makes that statement. Before we get there, I'll give you a little bit of context, a little background of what's going on in John 11. Well, the story that we're going to read today revolves around a family that happens to be incredibly close friends with Jesus. They're friends with Jesus. Jesus is friends with them. They are close. And, and you might recognize some of the names that, that Mary, her sister Martha, and, and their brother Lazarus. Very, very close friends with Jesus. Well, Jesus and his disciples have been doing some ministry in and around Jerusalem, but kind of word got out about Jesus and and they began to make plots to kill Jesus. And as you'll read multiple times in the Gospels, Jesus realizes what they're about to do. And, and he just says, hey, it's not my time. It's not my time to die. And so he leaves Jerusalem. He goes out in the countryside into the town surrounding and continues to do ministry, healing, and teaching people out there. And then his buddy, his good friend Lazarus gets sick. And I'm talking like bad sick. And Mary and Martha, they, they send a messenger out to Jesus to let Jesus know that Lazarus has gotten sick and to ask him to come back as quickly as possible. And then when this messenger gets to Jesus, Jesus receives the message that Lazarus has been sick and he responds with this. He says, this is not the sickness that leads to death, 
but rather this is happening to bring glory to my father. And he sends him away. And he continues to minister for a couple more days instead of heading to Bethany where Lazarus is dying. And then we read, Lazarus dies. Jesus then tells his disciples, hey, we need to head back to Bethany. And his disciples are like, hey, weren't they just trying to kill us back there? Like, should we really go back there? And Jesus responds with, yes, we need to head back to Bethany because our brother Lazarus has fallen asleep. And his disciples who didn't have much up there, I don't think sometimes, they're like, oh, good. I mean, he's been sick, so it's good that he gets some sleep. He can recover and get better. And then Jesus, again, imagine, oh, freak. No, he's dead. He's dead and we, we must go so that you might see the glory of God. And so the disciples followed Jesus back to Bethany, which they must have been thinking to their impending death. They, they must have been thinking as soon as we get back there, the people that were trying to kill us before would continue to try and kill us. And they would probably be successful this time. And so that's where we're actually picking up this story in verse 17. And we start John 11, verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. There's three main things that I, that I hope that we see throughout this passage this morning. Number one, Jesus wants to invade your present. And Jesus wants to begin to untangle your past. And Jesus wants to bring future hope to today. And we see that starting right off the bat with Martha. See, Martha does three things as she runs out to Jesus. And every single thing that Martha did is correct and it's good. It's just not complete. See... First, she, she immediately brings up the past with a very legitimate statement. If you had just been here, if you had just been here, he wouldn't have died. Oftentimes it's really difficult for us to, to put ourselves into the narrative, to, to allow ourselves into the narrative enough that we can actually begin to feel what it must have been like for them. And you don't have to have been a, a first century historian to have some idea of what it might have been like for Mary and for Martha. See, Mary and Martha, who, whose brother that they loved had fallen ill suddenly. And without the, doc, the help of doctors or hospitals or ICUs or, or pain medication, they worked and they gave everything they had to nurse their brother to health. There would have been fever and chills and vomiting and anxiety-filled days and sleepless nights, all in the hopes that they could keep him alive just long enough. Just long enough for Jesus to get back until finally Lazarus, the, the brother that they loved, breathes his last. And Jesus is nowhere to be found. 
And so Martha, looking to the past, she runs up to Jesus. And if you could imagine, she runs out to him and she loves him and she wraps her arms around him and she's mourning and her head's against his chest and she beats against his chest as she says, if you would have just been here, if you would have just been here, he would have lived. And there's some very real hang-ups in this for a lot of people. Some of you might actually be right here. There's a hang-up in you actually being able to believe the truth of who God is and who Jesus is. It's a difficult question. It's a question that it would be naive of me and unwise of me to pretend as if it doesn't exist. And that question is, how can God be loving? How can he be a good, loving God and me have experienced what I've experienced in my past? See, for many of us, there's this thing behind us, this, this thing that happened to us, this thing behind us, something that we did that, that becomes our identity. It becomes something that defines us. And, and we can't reconcile a loving, good God with, with what's behind us. We either can't reconcile the fact that he would love us because of something we did, or we can't reconcile the thought of him being a loving, good God when we consider what has happened to us. So if there's any kind of a abuse or neglect or loss or pain or, or darkness in your background, the question has to be there for you. Where were you? If you're good and if you're kind and if you're loving, where were you? If, if you're for me and not against me, then where were you? And this is, this is the question that Martha is asking here. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you? If you're a church person, if you, if you grew up in the church, uh, we have a tendency to miss this gut-wrenching, soul-level question from Martha. Uh, we gloss right over it as if it isn't even that big of a deal. We gloss over her agony and her pain because we know how the story ends. But nobody there knows how this story ends. Uh, people are still in mourning and they're crying and they're in sackcloth and ash. And, and Mary, who's following the Jewish custom tradition of staying in her house for 30 days in mourning for the loss of a loved one, she's still sitting in the house. She never even came out to see Jesus. It, it's not as if Jesus crests over the hill and the DJ turns the lights and the music on and the party starts. Nobody knows what's about to happen. And then Mary, she jumps right from that question into what I'm going to call like just a religious cliche. Where were, where were you, Jesus? But I know, <laughs> I know you ask whatever you want of God and he'll, he'll give it to you. I know. I'm going to argue that this is simply a religious cliche for Martha. That she's simply saying what she knows she's supposed to say. Deep down inside, she doesn't really believe it to be true in the moment. This is just some kind of weak sauce, inch deep, bumper sticker theology that isn't said to help embolden her faith in Jesus, but simply something that she knows she's supposed to say. And let me be clear, I, I am not throwing any stones. I think we've all been there in our lives where, where we have these cliches, these things that we say that we don't really feel to be true, uh, that, are, that we give out in a moment, but, but when we say them, it's, it's simply because we know we're supposed to, and yet they do nothing to stir our faith in God. And that's what Martha has done here. If you would have been here, but I know, 
I know whatever you ask, God will give you. And Jesus responds, your brother will rise. And it's, and it's Martha's response right here, which is why I feel like that was just a cliche for her. She says, yes, Lord, I, I know. I know on the final day, in the years to come and in the final day in the end, I know. I know he'll rise. And we've got Martha looking back on her past. If you would have just been here. Then about an inch deep in, in her spiritual cliche, but, but I know, into, I know years and, and years and years down the road, he'll rise on the last day. She's looking deep into her future. And remember what we're trying to do here today is, is to see that Jesus is going to begin to untangle and untether our past from our current reality. And he's going to bring hope of the future into our present. He's going to do that with one bold and very difficult statement, a statement that makes it impossible to simply think of him as good moral teacher because he's not claiming to be a good moral teacher. He's claiming to be the solution to the problem. And in verse 25, we see Martha. He says, Martha, egu, imi. I am, I am the resurrection and the life. And he presents himself to Martha as the solution to the problem. The resurrection and the life isn't just some future event. It's here now. It's available today to all. And Jesus is saying, I'm the solution to this problem of broken paths, of, of shallow religious cliches, and, and a future hope that's thousands of years away. Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection. Anyone who believes in me will not die, for even if he does die, he will live. Then he goes on to say that not only is he the resurrection, but he's also the life. And here we go again. If you, if you haven't picked up on it, we talked about it last week, every week of this series, that Jesus, when he invites you to know him, is not just inviting you into some future hope of glory, but rather that that future hope is brought into your today and we experience resurrection life today and every day going forward. Because for the believer, resurrection is not just a once a year holiday. It's an everyday reality. This is Jesus invading our present. Jesus being the life is not just life someday, but life today. And he's about to prove that he is the resurrection and the life with just, in just a few verses. We're going to skip down to verse 38. There's some verses in between there. It's an interaction between Jesus and Mary, it's not that it's not important, but we got to move forward a little bit today. Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been in the grave for four days. Just a little gift to you. If you don't know this, in the King James Version, that says, but Lord... It may stinketh. <laughs> that, I think that's a fun way to say it. By this time there's a bad odor for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And right there we see just a simple truth. We make it more complicated, but, but Jesus tells us, what does it take to see the glory of God? What does it take to see the glory of God in your life today? Just belief. 
earlier when I contested that she was just spewing some religious cliches. That I know anything you ask, God will do. Jesus says, then move the stone. Ah, stinketh. Jesus, you, you had your shot. If you'd just been here, this, this wouldn't have happened in the first place. But now we're four days in, Jesus. Four days is actually a strangely significant detail. I didn't know this until I was studying for this morning, but there's actually some first century Jewish writings, some kind of folk folklore, if you will, that said that a person's spirit would hover over the body for about three days. And so Jesus waiting until the fourth day meant that no superstition could seep its way into the story. Uh, nobody could come back and say Jesus got there just in time to suck the spirit back down into his body. There was, there was nothing left. He was dead. He was dead, 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 dead. And Martha, who stated earlier, I, I know God will do whatever you ask. When, when Jesus said move the stone, she was hesitant. She was doubtful. And, and I just want to point out, I think it's always worth pointing out, that Jesus' tenderness towards doubt is always a beautiful thing. When she shows this doubt, when she's hesitant, what does Jesus do? I mean, does he rebuke her? Like, you just ruined it. I mean, I tried to do something nice for you, and now you go and ruin it. Well, of course not. That's, that's not ever what he does. That's not what he does to you. He's tenderhearted. And he's caring and he's understanding and he's willing to listen. Did, did I not tell you that if you would just believe, you would see the glory of God? So what's actually really amazing, and I hope it's amazing to you, is that, that we actually see this story continue, even though there's evidence that she didn't believe. It continues on in verse 41. So they took away the stone and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And I, <laughs> this made me laugh this morning, so I thought I'd share with you. This is, here's, the, here's my idea. This is my picture of what just took place. It's Jesus praying at the entrance to the tomb. What does he say? Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I, I mean, I know you always hear me. I, I said it for them, but we're good, right? We're good. I, I don't know, that's how, whatever. It's how it reads. Like if, if you ever read it and had fun with it, you would see that that's how it, it's just what it says. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud, loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now I want to try and complete this picture, this idea of uh, the past being untangled and the future hope being pulled into the present. Uh, if we can think not, not on the backside of the resurrection of Lazarus, but, but back to the front side. Uh, we talked about this earlier, but you got two sisters who, who watched the brother that they loved dearly wither away and die from illness. Uh, a sudden illness that came out of nowhere, an illness that was more than likely pretty violent because it, it took him quickly. Uh, two sisters who saw all of this up close, all the while watching out the window, believing that Jesus would crest the hill at any moment. And the messenger comes back and tells, tells me, did you, did you tell him? And he's like, yeah, I told him. And, well, what did he say? Well, he said, this isn't the sickness that leads to death. And he went back to teaching. That's what he said. And then Lazarus continues to lie there writhing in pain. He, he can't keep fluids down anymore. And 
He struggles to breathe and the fever grows and the, and the pain grows. And these are the sights and the sounds and the smells that the sisters would have experienced. And then Jesus walks into town and says, move the stone. And, and Martha, she doubts. She protests. Then the stone is moved. And here's what I mean by Jesus untangling the past. For the sisters who saw and experienced and all their tears. And what do you think happens when Lazarus hops out of the tomb? Uh, what happens to all of those memories, all that sadness, all, all of that heartbrokenness when Lazarus comes out of the tomb? Don't you think it vanishes in a moment? All that pain and all of that sadness, all the accusations and the anger and the frustration and the doubt vanish in a moment when Lazarus walks out of the tomb, resurrected from the dead. Mary and Martha's hope had been somewhere in the future. They, they believed in a future resurrection on the last day, but Jesus brought the future hope into their present day. And, and so now in this moment, Mary and Martha, the past has been untangled for them and the future hope of glory has been brought into their lives for today. This is only made possible because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. For the believer, resurrection is not just a once-a-year holiday. It's an everyday reality. But here's kind of a big question for us. If we're honest, uh, for some of us, we have our own real hard doubts to deal with. Some of our doubts are tied to our past. One of two versions, we hit on this a little bit before, but we just can't believe that God would love us. You see, our understanding of what it means to be a Christian is that God's really into loving good people. But that's not our story, right? See, our, our background is that it's, it's not compatible with what it means to be a follower of Jesus in our minds. And yet we see over and over again in Scripture that Jesus, that God loves to pull people from the fringes of darkness and make them his brightest light. The, the other version is, is a past where something happened to us. There's something very real and dark and hurtful happened to us. You have a very similar question to Martha's. Where were you? If you would have just been here, this wouldn't have happened to me. And so you wrestle in that tension. And yet when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, when, when he dies on that cross and, and is risen from the dead, what we have is the opportunity for the past to become untangled and untethered from us. And, and, and the future hope can begin to seep into our lives today. But for some of us, it's not really our past at all that causes doubt or uncertainty. It's, it's really our present. And what I mean by that is just like Martha, we, we've got these kind of spiritual religious cliches that we live by that become the foundation of our lives and of our faith. This kind of weak sauce, inch deep theology that, that knows nothing about a relationship with Jesus. Uh, we simply know the things about him. We simply know stuff that he did. We know the right answers to give around questions regarding faith, but know nothing about what it means to really be in a relationship and truly follow Jesus. There's no real commitment to Jesus, no real desire to stay connected to him. And, and since there's no connection to him, we don't see any of the fruit in our lives that he says he's going to give us. We don't experience his movement in our lives, and so uncertainty begins to creep its way in. Then there's this glaring question of how do we know this isn't just a one-off? How do we look at the resurrection of Lazarus and think that it has anything at all to do with our lives today? Sure, we might be able to look at 
Mary and Martha and, and pull some moral principles to kind of apply to our lives today. But if we're really going to believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and to believe in him is to not die but live and that eternal life starts now and not just someday in the future when we die, how can we be confident? How can we be confident that this Lazarus resurrection just wasn't a one-time thing? Well, I'm really grateful that you asked that question this morning. You see, we, we believe all of that. Uh, all of what we've talked about over the past seven weeks because of one thing. And that one thing is not the resurrection of Lazarus who would die again. But, but rather the resurrection of Jesus that reveals to us as followers of Jesus that his death is the death of sin. That he defeated it once and for all and that by believing in him our past is being untethered unraveled behind us, that shame and guilt and hurt and pain is being detached from our identity. It's being detached of who we think that we are. We are no longer attached to that. We are now a child of God and the hope of the future glory is being pulled into today, into the present, and we can experience resurrection life today. And we are seeing this and experiencing this all the time. And the greatest evidence for us as a church is seeing the spirit of God working among us. We see it here, thankfully, week after week. People get into this baptism tub and they share their stories of what their lives were like before Jesus. It was, it's one of my favorite things about what we do as a church. That people would be willing to sit in water in front of hundreds of people they don't know. And share their story of, of how before Jesus, their life was filled with brokenness. And shameful sin and debauchery and all kinds of depravity and broken marriages. And in a moment... By placing their faith in Jesus, what was meant for shame and guilt becomes a trophy of God's grace in their lives. See, that's the past starting to be untangled. Not that there isn't still things to work through for, for any of us. Uh, not that all your questions got answered. Not even the where were you when question always gets answered. But in light of the resurrection, those things don't have to hold power over you anymore. That shame and that guilt and that hurt doesn't have to have power over you anymore. That is resurrection power taking place in your life today. See, for the believer, resurrection is not just a once-a-year holiday. It's an everyday reality. And so really the offer on the table for you today is for you to believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. To believe that's how simple it is. That's, that's how simple he says it is. To begin to see our past untangled, believe. To begin to experience the hope of the future today, we believe. So I have this question for you. Where have you allowed doubt to keep you from experiencing resurrection life today? If you're a follower of Jesus, is it? Is it a doubt that you actually are able to experience his life today? Uh, is it a sense that maybe this is as good as it gets for you? And, and you're just waiting on some sort of future hope, some sort of future glory? Uh, to, to only think of our relationship with Jesus based on life after death is, is to completely miss out on some of the best parts of what Jesus died for. And that's for you to be able to experience life during life. If you're not yet a, a follower of Jesus, is, is it a doubt that he truly has any desire to save you? 
Is it a, a doubt that he has any delight in you at all? Is it, is it some kind of doubt that he even has the ability to rescue you from what you've gotten yourself into? I'll say it like this. If your sinfulness was too much for Jesus, then he'd still be in the grave. If you still owed after placing your faith in Jesus, he'd still be dead. And he's not dead. See, for us as believers, resurrection isn't just a once a year holiday. It's an everyday reality. A reality that, that you could experience today for the first time. Should you choose to believe and so Jesus has this to say to you. He has this question to ask you. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe? Would you pray with me? Just like we've done every week, if you have yet to Put your faith in Jesus. Have you, if you've yet to express a belief in him being the resurrection and the life, I just want to take a moment and give you that opportunity today. Uh, you can pray a prayer like this with me. Just say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Jesus, I, I now believe that, that you are the only one that can resurrect me and bring life. Jesus, would you come into my life and, and teach me how to follow you? God, we're so, so, so grateful for your word, for the way that it convicts, for the way that it teaches. Uh, would, would you allow whatever it is that you've put in the hearts of your people today, would you allow it to seep, seep deep uh, so they could really begin to see change in their life because of it, that they could walk out these doors prepared and ready to live more like you and for you. Uh, that's always my prayer, that we would live more like you and more for you in our day-to-day. -day. God, we thank you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.